Welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Church. Covenant Grace Church is one church meeting in multiple locations. This message was recorded at our Menifee campus. Father, we come before you uh, needy people, Lord, and um, even as we address topics that your word address that make us uncomfortable, um, that uh, you know, spark um, feelings of regret and sin, Lord, we pray that you would um, come here, Lord. We pray that you would convict where conviction is needed. We pray that you would give gospel comfort where gospel comfort is needed. Lord, we pray that your spirit would be here. And uh, we know, Lord, you're everywhere present, but you're present particularly with your people to bless us. And we thank you for that. We thank you for the way that you come every week and alive in your word. And it's what we count on. We wouldn't gather if it weren't for that. And we uh, pray, Lord, that your spirit would come. Um, we love him. We love his work in our lives. And we pray that we'd be open, that we'd be good soil for his work. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So um, we're in a relationship series, uh, and we're calling Love Wisely. And wisdom is skillful living that creates a life of beauty, significance, and strength. And uh, we've been looking through the Proverbs just to look for what it says about uh, our relationships, because it's an area we need a lot of wisdom. And, um, and we're going to be on a difficult topic this morning, and um, it, the, the topic is we're going to be in Proverbs 5 mostly, we'll be a little bit in Proverbs 7, but we're going to talk this morning about sex, about adultery, about fidelity, um, and it's a heavy topic. I mean, it's one of those things where uh, when I drive away from here, I'm probably going to feel a little awkward. Uh, after you walk away from here, you're probably going to feel a little awkward. It's like, uh, do you remember when you had the talk? You know, it's that kind of a thing. Uh, one of my kids, you know, we had to have the talk. It was time. And uh, after we got all done and stuff, I said, how was that? And he said, uh, he said oh, it was good. I thought it was going to steal my childhood. And I'm like, no, it's nothing like that. He's like, it's pretty much what I thought. You know, um, but the, the Proverbs guys have a huge proportion of it is about, specifically about adultery and fidelity. I mean, you've got all chapter 5, you've got chapter 7, you've got multiple other sections throughout. Uh, aside from wisdom itself and speech, that would be the other biggest topic. And so to not address it is something that, you know, puts us at risk. And it doesn't have us listening to the whole counsel of God. I mean, this is something that God believes that we need. And so this morning we're going to look at fidelity, and we're going to see that fidelity guards a good gift, it steers clear of traps, and it cultivates delight. So those will be the three things. The first one is um, that fidelity guards a good gift. It's important to say from the beginning in any message where you talk about sex, it's important to mention from the beginning that the Bible is very pro-sex. When we see uh, commands uh, against sex outside of marriage, we can wrongly conclude somehow that God is opposed to sex or it's contrary to something that he desires, and that is not the truth. God invented sex. He invented every part of sex, whether it's physical body parts, uh, hormones, uh, the chemical parts of that. He invented every single part of that. And so if your vision of God is that he's a being that couldn't have had any part in creating that whole thing, then you don't have a full picture of God because this is a part of his design. We look in Genesis 2.24. This is before the fall. It says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. And it's not as if God created a man, and he creates a woman, he leaves them there naked in the garden, and then he comes back and he's like, What are you guys doing? I leave you alone for an hour and you're doing this? Like, where did this come from? It's like, no, this is God's design, right? And it's true, though, that the religious have not always been comfortable with God's design of sex, right? And we have that in, in history. For example, in the 18th century, there were the Shakers. You don't know any Shakers, and there's good reason for that. Shakers believe that sex in marriage was wrong, even for procreation. Okay, so that doesn't last, right? Like, that's self-limiting, because nobody wants to join that, and they're not having any kids to take it on, so it's dead, you know? Another major stream of Christianity has taught for a long time that sex is appropriate marriage only when there's a chance of conception, which is very damaging in marriage. I mean, what do you do about people that, you know, they're you know, past menopause and things like that? It's like, oh, there's no point in it now. You can't have kids, you know? But the Bible is clear that, that God created sex not just for procreation, but for enjoyment in marriage. And we see that in, in uh, Proverbs 5, 18 and 19. We're going to get there. That's where we're going to be this morning is in Proverbs 5, but we'll get to that part. Um, God is not repressive when, he, when it comes to sex, but God is protective. He protects it because it's a gift that he wants protected. And he protects sex because sex outside of marriage tr treats sex as a consumer good instead of a covenant good. 
I'm, I'll explain what that means. But sex outside of marriage treats sex as a consumer good instead of a covenant good. What I mean by covenant? Covenant is a legal, legal arrangement that establishes a relationship. Marriage is a covenant. Uh, marriage is a covenant that's loving and legal. You know, people say, well, you know, I, I love her and I don't really understand why we need a piece of paper to say that I love you. You do need that piece of paper because it's a promise of permanence. It's a promise that you're, you're making a covenant for life with that person. And so it's super important for, to show your love through a covenant. And a covenant relationship, guys, is the opposite of a c- consumer relationship. A consumer relationship says, I'm all in as long as you meet my needs, right? You guys are in business. That's the way your customers are. You might have some really loyal customers. The bottom line is, is that if you do not you know, give the products and meet their needs, eventually they're gone. I mean, this isn't, they haven't made a, a covenant with you, right? If you don't provide services, they're gone. That's what a consumer relationship's like. I'm in it as long as you meet my needs. A covenant relationship is the total opposite. A covenant relationship says, I'm all in even if you don't meet any of my needs and even if it costs me everything. None of your clients are making that deal with you, right? I'm in it as long, even if you meet none of my needs and it costs me everything. That's a covenant relationship, guys. Covenant relationship is about serving another. A consumer relationship is about being served. And I just want you guys, before we start this, for married people to think about this, what is your mindset to your spouse? Are you all in as long as they meet your needs? Or are you all in even if they don't meet any of your needs and they cost you everything? Because that's what a covenant is. A covenant says, I belong to you permanently. I belong to you exclusively. I belong to you completely. And I will never leave you or forsake you. I've seen all your flaws. I've seen you're crazy. And I'm not going anywhere. No matter what happens, I'm not going anywhere, even if it costs me everything. A marriage covenant says that. Marriage covenant makes you vulnerable to your spouse, right? Makes you vulnerable financially, big time, right? Makes you vulnerable legally. Makes you vulnerable personally. It makes you vulnerable emotionally and socially. You make yourself totally vulnerable to that person. You're totally laid bare to that person. And sex is a physical display of that vulnerability, right? God's designed a way for us to show in marriage that we've made ourselves completely exposed in every area of our lives and completely committed. And that's what it's about. But sex outside of marriage turns that covenant good into a consumer good. Um, premarital sex, for example, it says this, I'm too afraid or I want my freedom too much or I care about you too little to make a lifelong covenant with you, but I want you to share yourself with me anyway, right? That's what premarital sex basically says, right? It says, I'm too afraid and I want my freedom too much or I'm, I care for you too little to make a lifelong covenant, but I want the goods. I want the covenant goods from you without giving you the commitment. That's what it says. You know, it says there might be better vendors other places, Right? Um, real common thing in our culture to live together before marriage, and the whole idea is like, oh, it'll be good because we'll like make sure we're compatible, and it'll make sure that our marriage succeeds. All the studies show that people that live together first, they're way more likely to get divorced. Why? Because they're not being trained to be covenant keepers, right? They're being trained to be consumers. Because basically what you're saying is, I'm going to see if you meet my needs, and I'm going to keep my options open if there's a better vendor, right? I mean, that sounds crass, right? It is crass, you know, like that's what it is. It's a consumer relationship. Uh, sex in marriage is about covenant keeping. Um, this morning, we're going to look at the, the trap of adultery, and we're going to see that fidelity is about avoiding traps, but it's also about cultivating a delight in your spouse. And so we'll hit those two points. First, fidelity is about avoiding traps. Um, Proverbs 5, which I'm going to read in a moment, was written by a father to sons. And Proverbs is all about that, right? It's, it's father to son. And that's why a lot of the illustrations and stuff, you know, it's, he says, my son. He says, watch out for the forbidden woman. It's in the context of a father talking to his sons. And it's an important part of their discipleship. But this applies to women as well. I mean, you can insert, you know, forbidden man. And, you know, this, this applies to both, as you'll see. Adultery, guys, in our culture is super common. Christian and non-Christians, it's super common. By the, by the time somebody is age 70, um, one out of four husbands will commit adultery. One out of four. You think like, if you're going to play like, uh, what's the game with the revolver where you put one bullet in and you spin it? Yeah, Russian roulette, you know? And there's, and there's, four, there's four, four chambers in this one. It's not a six-shooter, you know? You spin it and you click, right? It's that common. Um, it, with women, it's one out of six. And that's rising, by the way. Like, more, more of the adultery I hear about is actually um, wives committing adultery. 
Every church, guys, deals with that at some point. Every, we haven't dealt with that at this point, but we will deal with that at this point. At some point. It happens. It's something that's common. Sometimes it's the pastors, right? I mean, that's a very common thing. Some of you in this, in this church have been affected by that, affected by pastors that, that committed adultery. Guys, Proverbs 5 is prevention. You know, what's really interesting is he's writing not to somebody caught in an affair. He's not writing to somebody even tempted by an affair. He's probably writing to a really young guy, right? His son, who's probably young at this point. And he's doing preventative medicine, right? He's doing prevention. This is something to prevent it. And so that's the tone of this is prevention. Why do we need prevention? We need prevention because it turns out that by the time somebody's drawn into an adulterous affair, they're usually so blinded and confused they don't listen. You guys dealt with that? Has dealt with people, you know, people that you're close to, and you're like, this is a path of destruction. Turn away from this. And they, they have all these justifications, and there's all this blindness, and they're just, you can't reason with them, right? This passage, actually, in verse 20, if you look at it, it calls adultery intoxication. In verse 20, it says, why should you be intoxicated, my son, by a forbidden woman? And what does that tell us? It tells us that when you get a certain distance close to that trap, you get intoxicated, you get confused. And so it's important to talk about it ahead of time, you know, you know before you're, you're near it. And so in verse 1, he says this, My son, be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ear to understanding, that you may keep discretion and your lips may guard knowledge. He's saying, my son, listen very carefully. Listen to everything I'm saying. Take it seriously. I know that this is a temptation for you right now. Listen carefully. Listen carefully because if you don't listen, it might be too late. And by the time I tell you later, it might be, it might be too late, right? You might not be able to hear it. I know this is very heavy. This whole topic is heavy, but it's important for prevention. In fact, you know, speaking in medical terms, talking about preventive medicine, it would be malpractice for us not to do this at some point, right? To actually warn about this trap. Adultery is a trap of intoxication, it says in verse 20, right? It's like the sirens, right, in Greek mythology. Um, the sailors, they would go along, and there were the sirens. They looked like beautiful women, and they would sing a song, and the, the, the guys would get kind of confused. The sailors would get confused, and they would move their ship closer and just ram it into the rocks and die, right? It, it's like the sirens call. Um, and it's a, adultery is a trap, guys, and all traps have bait. And adultery is really, and, and, and the Proverbs are really big on showing the bait talks a lot about the bait in every section. You're going to see this. You're going to think that. You're going to desire this. Here's what the bait is. Um, uh, traps have two things in common. They all have bait and death, right? And so what he wants us to see is that the bait has a hook in it. Look at verse 30, or sorry, verse 3 of chapter 5. It says, for the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. It's interesting in the Proverbs, when it talks about the bait, it talks about physical bait and smells and all these different things, right? But the big thing it mentions over and over again are the words. Because it turns out the trap is mostly verbal and emotional. You know, I don't think most of you guys, you know, being Christians, most of you, are, are probably going to, like, see somebody and think, oh, they're so hot, I want them to have an affair with them. It doesn't happen that way. It happens emotionally right? It happens verbally. It happens through words. The trap is set that way. Take a look at Proverbs 7, 13. And listen to her words. It says she comes to him or he comes to her, right? Either way. I have to offer sacrifices and today I paid my vows. So now I have come out to meet you, to seek you eagerly, and I have found you. Come, let us take our fill till morning. Let us delight ourselves with love. For my husband is not at home. He's gone on a long journey. He's taken a bag of money with him. At full moon, he will come home. And with much seductive speech, she persuades him. And her smooth talk, she compels him. These tempting words of adultery, guys, what they promise is an opportunity to be pursued. You know, that's the big trap is it, it presents a temptation of being pursued. If you look at verse 15 of chapter 7, it says, So now I have come out to meet you. I seek you eagerly and I've found you. Uh, the, the trap of adultery is someone who will pay attention to you, right? Somebody who will desire you. Somebody who really listens to you. Somebody who respects you. Somebody who thinks you're, you know, you're so funny or you're so smart or you're so strong. You know, somebody that will really care for you. Somebody that sympathizes with your marital struggles. That's like the biggest trap in the world. You should never discuss your marriage with somebody of the opposite sex. Like, that's just like asking for it, right? But they, they, take, they sympathize with you. They take an interest in what you are interested in. They share your same passions in life. Oh, what if I would have found this person earlier, right? They attend to your needs. A person that offers things that your spouse doesn't seem to offer you, right? That's the trap. The trap isn't really physical for most people things that you feel entitled to, things you think you're being deprived of, 
These tempting words, they, they give you an opportunity to be pursued. They also offer you an opportunity without consequence, or so they say. Look at verse 18 of chapter 7. She says, Come, let us take our fill of love till morning. Let us delight ourselves with love. For my husband is not at home. He's gone on a long journey, taking a full bag of money. You know, the idea here is, is that there won't be any consequences with people. Don't worry. I got this all covered. There's a way to keep this covered. There's a way to keep this, you know, from anybody knowing. Like, this is safe. You're not going to have any human consequences at all. It also promises sometimes that you won't have any consequences with God. Take a look at verse 14 in chapter 7. She says this, I have offered sacrifices and today I paid my vows. You think, well, what's that about? Why would she bring up, why would she bring up her, her, her religious obligations at a point like this when she's trying to seduce somebody? What's she saying? She's saying, oh, I've taken care of my vow. I made my sacrifices. Oh, we and God are good. This will be fine. God's not going to get in the way of this. He's going to be okay with that. You know, there, it's amazing how often, guys, that adultery takes advantage of God's grace. You see this all the time with church people, and it's like, I just want to tell you ahead of time, I want to give you these words so that if you bring them to me, you'll know that I, these don't work. They don't work at all. And if you hear yourself saying this, things like, you know, I'll never be happy in my marriage, and God would want me to be happy, and so, you know, I'm going to go after this person. Where's the verse that God wants you to be happy in sin? I don't know where it is, you know, but we get this idea. God would want me to, so we go, God is good, God is gracious, Therefore, God wants me to be happy at all costs. It's like, no, it's not in there, right? It's not in there. Um, you, you hear people say stuff like, well, you know, I know the Bible says I shouldn't do this. You know, I shouldn't divorce my spouse. and this, But I've got a peace about it. God's given me a peace about it. God's okay with it. God condones it. Guys, God never condones things that he forbid in Scripture. Because he doesn't talk out of both sides of his mouth, you know? And a lot of times I take, like to take people back to, like, you believe this is the Word of God, right? Yes. Okay, you believe this is the word of God. So this is God speaking, yes. And it says here that, you know, there are grounds for divorce and you don't meet them, right? Yes, I know that, but God over here has told me it's okay. He doesn't do that. He's not like us. Not like us as parents or whatever. We say, hey, don't do that, and then later they beg, and we're like, all right, you know, go ahead. Like, he's not like that, right? He's consistent. He's, he's immutable. He doesn't change. He's got, he's got laws. And so that peace you have about it is, is, you remember Jonah? Jonah was asleep in the ship. He had a real peace about things, right? There's a storm. You're like, peace about it means nothing, right? It means nothing. I mean, adultery is an intoxication. And of course you've you got a peace, right? Or people will say this, and this one's really scary. People will say, well, God will forgive me. You know, I've even heard somebody say, God will forgive me. That's his job. And I'm like, no, it isn't. It's his job to beat you up for this. <laughs> I mean, that's what's going to happen. It is not his job. Guys, the scripture never says that God promises to forgive unrepentant sin. You know what I mean? He says, repent and believe and you'll be forgiven. He doesn't say, like, do whatever you want. I forgive you for anything, right? It doesn't say that, right? God is forgiving if we repent. But I don't know you're going to repent. You know, people assume like, oh, you know, I'm going to do this now and I'll repent later and things will be good. I don't know if you're going to repent. In Hebrews, it talks about Esau came to a point he couldn't repent. You need to have some fear of the Lord here, right? Uh, in, in Proverbs 5.21, it says this, for the, for the man's ways are before the eyes of Yahweh and he ponders all his paths. Isn't that a powerful verse? The, a, a man's ways are before the eyes of Yahweh and he ponders all his paths. Yahweh sees everything and he ponders it. Now, either that's like the most terrifying verse you've ever heard if you're, you know, headed down a path of rebellion, or it's the most comforting thing you've ever heard. It depends, right? It depends on your, your, your situation with him. You guys remember what happened when David, you know, he sinned with Bathsheba, and he covers it all up. Yes, husband killed, and he's got everything all settled, right? Everybody's bribed or, or dead or whatever is needed to make this thing quiet, right? You remember what it says at the end of 2 Samuel 11? very last verse says this, but the thing that David had done displeased Yahweh. And then you know, there's going to be trouble, right? Yahweh sees, he ponders, he is not pleased. And you know what? Yahweh doesn't play, does he? He does not play, right? And that's why adultery is, is not a path to life, but a path to death. Look at verse 3 in chapter 5. For the lips of the forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is as bitter as wormwood and sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path of Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander. She doesn't know it. 
And now, O sons, listen to me. Do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her and do not go near the door of her house, lest you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless, lest strangers take their fill of your strength and your labors go to the house of a foreigner. Guys, what it says here is adultery shreds lives. I mean, uh, verse 3 says that she's sharp as a two-edged sword. You might be in here and you think, like, this message doesn't really relate, relate to me. I'm not married. You know, what does this have to do with me? Guys, adultery cuts, and it cuts us all. Everyone in this room's been cut in some way by adultery. Everyone has been. Whether it's a betrayed spouse, or it's kids, or it's the parents, you know, of the, of the person that, that committed adultery, or it's extended family, or it's friends, or it's, your, it's somebody in your church family. Guys, we've all been cut, right? Sex in marriage is this wonderful, like, glue that actually binds a husband and wife together and, and creates a stable, wonderful home for, for the kids, and it, and it creates a community that's strong and a church that's strong, right? But when it's used outside of marriage, it's a sword, and it lacerates. It lacerates people, guys. Our marriages. Other people depend on your marriage. Do you guys realize that? Other people are depending on your marriage. Even people outside your home are depending on your marriage. Your kids depend on your marriage. Your grandkids depend on your marriage. Your friends are depending on your marriage. Guys, a friend of mine, um, when she, was, she had decided you know, later in life she was going to leave her husband, and uh, she went to her adult daughter, and she told her, she goes, you know, I'm going to leave him, and you know, this has not been working for a long time. I'm done. You know what her adult daughter said to her? said this, what makes you think you can do that? Your marriage isn't just about you. I need your marriage. My kids, your grandkids need your marriage. Your marriage isn't about you. It's about all of us. I just thought that was profound, and that turned her away from it, actually. That actually, for whatever reason, it was enough clarity that she, she turned away from disaster there. All of our marriages, guys, either strengthen or weaken all the marriages around us. And, and we've all, guys, we've all been cut by this. We've all been cut by this. We've all been lacerated by this. And I just want to say to anyone who's like feels himself going down that path again, don't cut us again. You know, don't cut us again. We've been cut enough by this. Don't cut us again. Adultery is a path of death. Look at verse 5. Her feet go down to death. See, this is the thing you don't want to see, you know, like, so you're like, oh, wow, you know, she's so great, she's so attentive, or he's so wonderful, he's so strong, he's so caring. And what we don't want to see is where the feet are, right? Look at this. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path of Sheol. She doesn't ponder the path of life. She's not thinking about things. Her ways wander, and she doesn't know it. It says in here that adultery takes away our honor and our years. If you look at verse 9, I just think about that, and I think about, like, man, there's so many people my age and a little older that just, you know, they decide that they want to, for whatever reason, not transition to the stage they should. You know what stage you should transition in middle age? Sage. That's the next stage, right? Sage. That's where you have wisdom, and you have you know, bad experiences and mistakes to share, and you have good experiences to share, and you have biblical wisdom to share, and people can come to you and they can feed off your marriage. Like, you should be transitioning to stage, Sage. Um, and yet, what happens is, a lot of them, seems, they want to become 19 again. And the thing is, they don't look 19. It's pathetic, right? They want to go out, you want to date, you want to do all this stuff, and it's like, you could be at a sage stage. You, you, you're losing your honor in your years. Verse 10 says you lose your strength in your labors. That's true. Get some lawyers involved. You're going to lose your strength. And you're going to lose your labors. And in verse 11 it says this. And at the end of your life you groan and your flesh and your body are consumed. And I think that's just a, talking about aging. It feels like that. <laughs> you know? It feels like your flesh and your body are being consumed, Right? Just think about the kind of old person you want to be. I think this can save you from a lot of foolishness. What kind of old person do I want to be? You know? When we're all aging, guys. We're all aging rapidly. You guys look okay, but, like, I'm aging twice as fast as my wife, and you go, like, oh, that's nice of him to say. Like, no, seriously, look at it, you know? It's obvious. It's an outdoor job that I have, so that's probably part of it. But, um, you know, we're aging fast, right? And it's like we're going to someday be that old person, and what kind of story do you want to have? Do you want a story of uh, unfaithfulness and foolishness, or do you want to have a story of wise fidelity? Like, you want to have a life that you, that, that's a story of God's faithfulness lived through you. That's the meaningful life. The meaningful life is a covenantal life, not a consumeristic life, right? Nobody at the end of their life wants to be like, man, that guy was a heck of a consumer, right? Like, no, you want to have the kind of life that at the end of your life, they're like, that, that woman knew how to keep a covenant. That man knew how to keep a covenant. 
Verse 11 says that we will regret if we're not accountable to others. This is super important. Verse 11 says, At the end of your life you'll groan and your flesh and your body are consumed and you'll say, How I hated discipline and my heart despised reproof. I didn't listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors. I am at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. Basic idea is like, I should have been accountable. <laughs> you know, I should have let people ask me questions. I should have listened to counsel. I should have invited counsel. I should have run with a pack. You know, there's almost a sense like he went out of the congregation and then he comes back in and he's like, I just made a huge mess out there. Proverbs 18.1 says, whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment, you know, or, um, you know, think about those those nature films, right, with the caribou. You know, so there's a helicopter, you may have planet Earth, something, there's a helicopter and there's a caribou and they're running across the tundra and it's a beautiful scene, right? But you know it doesn't stay like that, right? There's... Just, we're not just going to watch Caribou Run, and it's going to be so cute. And, oh, look at the baby one, you know. And you're like, all right, where's it coming? And the music changes, right? And the wolves come, and they're running for their lives, right? And the pack's just running and running, and the wolves are chasing them down. And then what invariably happens, right, is one of them goes off to the side. And what do you think? Dead. You can only run for so long. You're dead. You know, that's what happens. And guys, that's the way it is spiritually. Hebrews 3.12 says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. Sounds like the intoxication of adultery, doesn't it? And, but exhort one another, as long as it's called today, that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. I just want to ask you guys, do you have a close friend like that? That cares for your soul like that? that consistently cares for your soul, that will ask you hard questions, that will be open for you to come and to confess things. Guys, there's safety in that kind of friendship. One of the most encouraging confessions I ever heard was, you know, years ago there was a friend of mine that said, he said, Eric, um, I'm going uh, to meet with a client tomorrow, and for whatever reason, last time I met with this client, I was like super attracted to her. And I just want you to pray for me, and I want you to ask how it went. And I was like, this is like the most encouraging confession I've ever heard. You know, isn't that amazing? What kind of safety is there in that? I had this feeling last time, and, you know, I talked to him, and I said, how'd it go? He's like, I didn't have that feeling at all. Why? He burned the bridge. Yeah, it's not real sexy when Eric knows. You know, like it kind of takes out the whole lure, doesn't it? Right? And so um, I just ask you, like, do you have friendships like that? Could you imagine confessing something like that to a, to a Christian friend? You know, you can do that. Here. Get a friend that's like that. This Saturday, I'm going to be leading a discussion on the men's breakfast next Saturday, which at 7 a.m., Panera for the men uh, in Menifee. And, um, and we're going to talk about the, the friendship of David and Jonathan. We didn't really get to it yesterday. So we're going to talk about the, the friendship of David and Jonathan. But I'm super excited about leading that discussion because, like, that kind of friendship is super important. Friendship where you're known, you know? Because adultery, guys, is an intoxicating trap. It lies. All sin lies, right? All sin deceives. All sin puts the bait out there, but hides the hook and the knife and the frying pan and the guy that's going to eat you, right? <laughs> All traps do that. Sin doesn't come and say, you know, how would you like to betray your spouse and destroy your kids and throw away all you've worked for, dishonor the church and incite the vengeance of God? You know what you'd say? I'm busy. You know, we're going to go to Walmart later. Or, you know what I mean? Like, I don't have time for that, right? But sin doesn't do that, right? Sin comes to you and shows you all bait. It says to you, look at how this person values you. Oh, she thinks you're so funny and smart. Oh, she thinks you're so strong. Oh, he cares about what you really want. Oh, she understands how hard-worked you are and how underappreciated you are at working at home, right? Just imagine how much better your life would have been if you would have found him earlier on before you got married. And like, Maybe there's still a chance for you. Like, this is the one. This is the one God had for me right? That's what sin does. And then you bite, and then the hook's set, and then you're dragged in, and then you and all that you love get gutted, fried, and eaten. It's easy pickings. Satan's been doing it forever. He uses the same trap. <laughs> we read Proverbs, we're like, oh my gosh, that is how it is, right? Like, it's the same thing. We're dumb. We keep falling for it, right? Adultery is a trap of intoxication. And, and when you look at um, verse 7, you can see how adultery and it lures in. Look at, look at Proverbs 7.21. It says this, With much seductive speech she persuades him, her, her smooth talk compels him, and then listen to this, and all at once he follows her as an ox to the slaughter. Yeah, I've been to a slaughterhouse. I'm a, a horse veterinarian, and so part of my rotation in vet school and stuff was to go to a slaughterhouse. 
and we wanted their organs. I <laughs> know, it's like, that's nice. So we went there to get organs, and, um, but we got to see the whole process. And at this particular slaughterhouse in Central Valley, and they were doing a lot of dairy cows. And one thing about dairy cows is when they go to get milk, they, they go through a little spraying system that supposedly like sprays the manure off, <laughs> you know, I don't know. And then, and then they'll hook up the milking stuff. And so what happens with dairy cows is when they go up to their, their milking station, when they get the sprayers, they start letting down milk. You see milk spraying all over the ground because they, it's a habit. They know they're getting milk. Do you realize when these dairy cows, these old retired dairy cows, when they went up the ramp into the slaughterhouse, which what happens up there is they use something called captive bolts. So they don't shoot them with a gun. They got this like pipe thing. You put a 22 bullet in it. It's got a little rod that shoots out. So you don't have like lead in your meat, right? So they pop it on the head. It hits them and they drop dead. It's like super humane. It's quick. So you don't have to worry about that. But um, one thing that you notice when they walk up the ramp is all those dairy cows, they're streaming milk. They think they're getting milked. They have no idea. You know, and that's the thing with adultery is it woos you and it drags you in like an ox going to slaughter, like a dumb animal. It's like, oh, good, this will be great for me. <laughs> it's like, no, this is a slaughterhouse, right? This is a slaughterhouse. Adultery promises life but gives death. It promises a feast. And you see this in Proverbs, how she promises a feast, but it's a banquet in the grave and you're the main course. Proverbs 5 um, has this really complicated, intricate means of defense. So you think like, okay, how do I deal with this? This thing's so intoxicating, all that. Proverbs has a very complicated way of dealing with it. You know what it says? Run. <laughs> okay, like, isn't that great? Like, it doesn't go like, oh, you need to do this, and then, you know, claim that promise. And no, run, right? Run, run away. Verse 8, keep your way far from her. Do not go near the door of her house. That's pretty simple advice, right? It's like, you're a dumb animal. It's intoxicating. Stay away from the door. Like, done. Like, that's awesome. And you're like, this message should be shorter. <laughs> but it talks about steering clear, guys. We've got to steer clear. You remember, the Bible's big on running with sexual temptation. You remember Joseph with Potiphar's wife, right? He just ran. And he was like, that's what you do. You run. You steer clear. Don't go near the traps of adultery. A lot of infidelity, guys, happens at work, at school, at the gym, on social media, and through messaging. Like those would be your main areas that you're, that's likely to happen. It's going to happen, you know, at work or at school or, you know, gyms are a lot more communal now, you know, a lot more talking in relationships. It can be a dangerous environment. Um, social media, you know, hey, what is that? What is my old ex doing these days? You know, like, let's find her. Let's find him. Let's connect. There's no risk of that, right? Or, you know, there's some person from work or whatever and you start private messaging in there. Spouse doesn't have your passwords, you're hiding these things um, through texting, you know. I would just say, steer clear of being alone with the opposite sex, you know. I mean, I know that not everybody agrees with this, and, it, you know, they call it the Mike Pence rule. It was the Billy Graham rule before that, and it was probably just Paul's rule before that. I don't know. But, um, but the idea of just not being alone with the opposite sex, like somebody you're not married to or related to, like you don't need to be spending that kind of time. You know, for me, if I'm going to counsel with a woman, it's going to be with, with Tasha and I. We're not going to do that. Even at Starbucks, I'm not going to even do that in public. I'm not going to do it at all, right? Why? I'm not immune. You're not immune. None of us are immune. This passage talks about not being immune. And um, so not being alone together. Um, you know, my work as a veterinarian, I'm at people's ranches. You know, don't linger. You don't go inside. You're outside. You move on, right? Steer clear of personal, getting personal with opposite sex at work. Be a lot better for you to be viewed as unfriendly than to be actually unfaithful. And a lot of times, you know, especially guys that are like, oh, I don't want to be rude, I don't want to be unfriendly. It'd be way better for you to be unfriendly than to be unfaithful. You know, if the gym's a problem, like go to a gym, don't talk to people. It'd be better to be unfriendly than unfaithful. Um, if, it's a, if something's happening there, it'd be, it'd be better to be fat, right, than unfaithful, <laughs> right? Like bottom line, being fat's not the worst thing in the world, right? Um, steer clear of following anyone on social media that you're attracted to. I think that's so odd. Why would you look at a picture, fresh pictures of people you're attracted to every day? Like, what is that doing? Come on. Like, don't follow anybody like that. Steer clear of anything beyond business-like messages with the opposite sex on texting or Facebook messaging or whatever. Make it quick. Make it to the point. Make it business-like. You're not sharing your feelings and getting support and encouragement. Like, get that from your spouse. Get that from your, uh, your friend that's a same-sex uh, friend, um, but that's a place where it happens. Steer clear of discussing your marriage with any one of the opposite sex. That's dangerous, so dangerous. So many things start with counsel, 
and end in adultery. And guys, this might seem extreme to you. You might think, like, gosh, this guy's kind of extreme, right? But guys, adultery is an intoxicating trap. You don't wander around Mirkwood and wonder why you're, like, losing control. You don't, you don't sail your ship right around the sirens and go, wow, cool concert. No, you don't do that, right? You know, you're thinking straight right now probably because you're in church and you're, you're listening to, like, this hairy guy talk to you. Like, you're probably not feeling like adultery right now. And you're thinking clearly, right? You're thinking clearly, but you won't be later. I've seen it a ton of times. You won't be later. You know, this person that was like, had all these biblical convictions, and like, they're all gone now. Well, God told me otherwise. It's like, what? When? You know, like, so um, verse 8 says, don't go near your house. It's a, it's a reminder that you're not immune. You are not immune to adultery. I am not immune to adultery. We need to stay away. Now, the second thing it does, though, is not just say what we shouldn't do, but what we should do. And this part's more fun, probably, for you. But look at verse 15. Fidelity cultivates delight. Verse 15 of chapter 5. Drink water from your own cistern and flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad and streams of water in the street, let them be for yourself alone and not for a stranger with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a loving deer and a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? It's really cool here because fidelity is about more than just what you avoid. Now, that was a lot on avoiding, and I stand behind it. But it's also something that you cultivate. And what you can see from this passage is the Bible is not prudish about talking about sex. We are. You know, the Bible is not. It's not prudish about it at all. It's actually a lot more graphic than you'd like. This is a moment where you go like, oh, I love expository teaching, and then I start doing it, and you're like, no, 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 no. Topical's fine, you know, right? Because this passage, guys, it uses symbols here, and I won't go into detail, but like the well and the cistern is a feminine sexual symbol. A well and a cistern is a female sexual symbol. The fountain is a masculine sexual symbol. And you're like, okay, this is awkward. I know it's awkward. It's really awkward. Try Song of Solomon. Try Song of Solomon 7-7, where he says to his wife, your stature is like a palm tree and your breasts are like clusters. I say, I will climb the palm tree and lay hold of its fruit. Like, that's in the Bible. And you say, well, that's kind of kinky. Like, that's the Holy Spirit saying that. Okay? It's the Holy Spirit, and the Song of Solomon is like that. And if you had a really good commentary, you'd find all kinds of things in the Song of Solomon that you're like, Lord, why? This is too much detail, right? Too much detail. Guys, in this passage, it it compares marriage. I won't go into detail, but it compares marriage to a water source, a cistern, a well, a fountain. Why water? Think about where they lived. This was written in ancient Israel, a semi-arid area. Water's everything, right? Like here, you know, we got some rain, but that's rare, right? The water was everything, and you needed to find water sources. I mean, think about this area. If, If you didn't have piped in water, where are you getting water here? You're not getting out of Lake Elsinore, right? Where are you getting your water from? None, right? And so wells were a big deal, and they were a big deal then. And wells and springs in the desert were precious, and he's saying, treat your marital intimacy that way. Treat it as precious as water in the desert. He says, guard it by enjoying it regularly, like a spring or a well in the desert. You know, guys, a sexless marriage is a marriage at risk. It's easy pickings. Satan does those all day long. You know, he can do a dozen of those before breakfast. You know, sexless marriages are easy pickings. He's saying, delight yourself in your spouse. But you know what's interesting? There's something more here. There's something more here than just, you know, that that, uh, married, married people should regularly enjoy sex together. There's a command here about how to feel about your spouse. You guys realize that? There's an act that's commanded, but there's a feeling commanded. Do you see it? He says, he says, let your fountain be blessed. Rejoice in the wife of your youth. That's a command. As a loving deer and a graceful doe, let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. There are commands here about how you, you right there, need to feel about your actual spouse. Okay? And here are the commands. Rejoice in your spouse. Delight in your spouse. Be intoxicated with your spouse. These are commands. These are commands about how to feel. And I know for a lot of us, they're like, well, that's hard. And I can do things I'm told to do, but this is telling me how to feel. You, know, you hear people say things like, I just can't do that. You don't understand. We've fallen out of love with each other. We fell out of love. There's nothing that can be done. Which, believe, which shows me, guys, that you believe a lie of our culture. 
our culture has this, this idea about emotions in marriage, is that emotions are, they're in control. And they can be there, and when they're gone, there's just nothing you can do. Lost it, out of love, right? That there's nothing you can do, and that somehow that determines. They have a life of their own. There's no way to be attracted again. There's no way to delight again and all that. Guys, that idea is wrong. It's not true. How do I know that's not true? Because this commands delight, rejoice, be intoxicated with your spouse. And guys, God does not command anything that's impossible to do. You realize that? It is impossible to be sinless, yes. God does not command anything that is impossible to do by the power of the Spirit through a transformed heart. All of God's commands are actually possible. There's something he needs to enable you to do, but they're possible. This is something that can be done. And so how do we live this command? How do we rejoice in and delight in and be intoxicated with our spouse? Let me ask you this. How were you intoxicated with your spouse before? Right? You think, oh, I can't do this. There's no way I'm delighting in that woman. You know, you'd be like, oh, there's no way I can rejoice in her. Intoxicated? No. Right? Well, how were you before? How were you intoxicated with your spouse before? You were intoxicated before. Okay? No one gets into a lifelong covenant with another sinner unless they're half crazy or intoxicated. <laughs> you realize that? No one does. Why would you do that? As a sinner, I'm going to commit forever with this person. You were either half crazy or intoxicated, right? And we see it in pre-marriage, and I don't mean literally. We see it in pre-marriage a lot, you know? You sit down, you sit down with this couple, and, um, and you say to the bride-to-be, you're like, what do you think his greatest weakness is? She's like, um, oh, that's a tough one. And I said, well, it was in your book. You should have been prepping for a week on this. <laughs> oh, it's hard. I guess I just have to say that he's just so sacrificial and that sometimes he just doesn't find time to take care of himself. And I'm just like, oh, kill me now. You know, like, <laughs> what is that? That's intoxication, right? That's, that's intoxication. And it's good. I mean, we'd never get married if that didn't happen, right? Right? What, what happened there? What, what did you used to do that you had that? You used to focus on your spouse's strengths and you used to overlook their faults all the time. That's what you used to do. You had a habit of looking at their strengths and ignoring their faults. That was a habit. That was a discipline that you had. But something changed. Over the years, you focused more and more on your spouse's faults and less and less on their strengths. So how do we get back to that? How do we get back to like seeing the strengths and, 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 and not seeing the faults anymore? How do we get back to it? And, the, and then there's a word for that. It's called grace. Most marriages, guys, even most Christian marriages, are starved of grace. Almost every time there's a couple that comes to us and they need counsel, like, there is no grace. That is a graceless environment. Guys, make a habit of forgiving your spouse's sin. Make a habit of overlooking their faults. Make a habit of seeing and delighting in any and every good thing you can find. And that's one of the things we'll do in counseling. You go like, hey, well, tell me something you actually do like about her. You know, it's like, well, you know. I mean, she doesn't bug me all the time. I'm like, okay, let's go further. You know, like, we're trying to draw that out. What do you delight in her? Start seeing that. It's a discipline of delighting. You guys realize, for a marriage to be good and intoxicating and rich, there needs to be a discipline of delighting. You're disciplined to look, and you guys, you might need counseling, they might need correction, all that stuff, but I'm just saying, you need to give grace more than anything. Many marriages are totally starved of grace. And guys, intoxication grows as you give grace right? But a lot of us, you know, it takes work. It's hard, right? That's what adultery says. That's going to take a lot of work. It's going to be hard. It is going to take a lot of work and be hard. It's going to be the hardest thing you ever did, you know? It's going to be the best thing you ever did. It's going to be the hardest thing you ever did. It takes a lot of work, you know? Um, some of us want to just take an easy path, you know, find another relationship, something worth all the work, right? But look at verse 18. He says, rejoice in the wife of your youth. I love that. What's that a call to? That's a call to, like, persevere, you know, it's called to be committed to your covenant. Notice it doesn't say rejoice in your wife in her youth. Okay, that would be a different verse, right? Rejoice in your wife in her youth. Okay, that's easy. Okay, anybody can do that. You can be a consumer and do that. Rejoice in your wife or husband in their youth. It says rejoice in the wife or husband of your youth. It's saying know how to grow in love and intoxication with the person you've had from your youth. Learn how to love that person as they get old and wrinkly and toothless and immobile. I think that's romantic. Don't you? I mean, don't you want, I mean, think a lot about sitting, you know, in those rocking chairs, um, you know, on the porch, watching your kids and your great-grandkids and knowing that you kept a covenant. 
Guys, meaning's found in that. Meaning's found in being faithful to the covenant, seeking God, meeting those challenges. Meaning's found in cultivating your garden. You know, you're like, well, I have this garden. It's a disaster. And I'm like, yeah, it is. Like, it took a while to get this way. You know, like, this happened over time. You know, there's all this debris and weeds, and there's nothing green there. And, you know, you look over at this other person, and you're thinking, like, that's green. You know why the grass is greener on the other side? You're watering it. You know, all those things you're doing to water that other relationship, if you put it over here, maybe take the debris and clear it out, start weeding, maybe till, you know, water this thing. It could become a garden of delight. Not perfect. Become a lot better, right? That's where real meaning's found. It's not found in quitting and looking for a, a garden that doesn't need work. Anyone could do that. And they don't exist, by the way. <laughs> there is no garden that doesn't need work. You know, you get over there and you're like, you, you know, in the beginning you think they are. Why? You're intoxicated. And you're like, oh, this is great. Oh, she's everything the other one wasn't, you know? He's everything. And then what? It's like, oh, gosh, it's a lot of work. You know, what's wrong with this place? It's like, there's always work. Weed it, till it, clear the debris water it. The water your marriage needs, guys, is grace. And so I just want to close with this. How are you going to make, how are you going to become gracious toward your spouse? Like what could free your heart to actually delight in that sinner you're married to? Say like, he's an ogre. Look at him. I know, you know. How are you going to find a way to delight in that person? How are you going to find a way to delight in that wife of yours, that sinner you're married to? And it's going to be by seeing the love of God for the sinner that you are, right? It's going to be by seeing the love of God for the sinner you are. If you're a Christian today, if you're trusting in Christ, and this, this wouldn't be for somebody that isn't trusting in Christ and just living in their sin, but for somebody that's repentant and trusting in Christ, God's love for you guys is covenantal, not consumeristic. Aren't you glad for that? God's love for you, he's not in it just as long as his needs get met, right? And religion sounds like that, right? God will be with you as long as you meet his needs. God has no needs. And if he did, you couldn't meet him, Right? You're a sinner. There's nothing you bring to the table except guilt and, 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 and the, um, the right judgment that he would have towards you. We have nothing to offer, but then God makes this covenant with us for our greatest need. He says, I'm in, even if you don't meet any of my needs and even if it costs me everything. Isn't that the covenant God made with you, the cross? I'm in, even if it, meets, it doesn't meet my needs and it costs me everything. And at the cross, it did cost him everything. And the cool thing is that the, he doesn't bail God never bails on us. You know, if he was going to bail on us, he would have done it when we cost him the most and gave him the least. You know where that was? The cross. If the cross didn't make him give up on you, nothing will. Right? There's not going to be some future thing that will. On the cross, Jesus paid for all of your sin. The Bible talks about sin as spiritual adultery, unfaithfulness. And on the cross, Jesus Christ pays all the debt for the unfaithfulness of his spouse. And he never gives up on us. He'll never abandon us. You could give your spouse that. Like, you have that. You could give that to your spouse. You should give that to your spouse. Um, God's love for you guys, do you guys realize that God's love for you is intoxicating? He's intoxicated with love for you. Do you realize that? You think, that's weird. I don't want to think about that. Isaiah 62.5, yes, you do. You'll love it. It says, as a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so your God rejoices over you. He's in that intoxicated stage, right? Except he stays in it. He's intoxicated. He delights in you. He rejoices in you. Zephaniah 3.17 says that the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one to save, and he rejoices over you with gladness. He rejoices over you with gladness, which is a little redundant, right? Like, he's just crazy about you. It's kind of like that pre-marriage girl that I was talking about, right? Like, he's great. She's great. He's intoxicated with you. Listen to this. It says, he will quiet you with his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. You believe that? You believe that because you're in Jesus, God delights over you with loud singing? You think, how could that be? Why would he think of me that way? He's covered all your sins with the blood of Jesus, and he's made a practice of looking at every one of the deeds that he could delight in and delighting in it fully. You know, even our good deeds need to be forgiven, right? But he puts a layer of grace over everything we've done, and he's constantly looking for things that he can delight in and reward. Isn't that awesome? God has a discipline of delighting in you. You could give that to your spouse. That's something you have from God that you could give to your spouse. God's love for you guys is attentive. You know, like I talked about, one of the temptations of adultery is somebody that pursues you and understands you and cares for you and appreciates you and wants you. Someone who really sees you for who you are, thinks about you constantly, right? That's what you want. God does that. Remember verse 21? 
For, the, for a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all your paths. You know, you're in Christ, and he constantly thinks about you, sees you, and ponders your ways. It's awesome. He loves us like that. I mean, that's what it means to be loved and desired and pursued and understood. You can give that to your spouse. And guys, as we come to the Lord's table um, during these last few songs, it's going to be a reminder to us of something that Jesus promised us in the future. He said that when he returns, it's going to be like a wedding feast. You guys know, like, weddings are stressful sometimes if you're involved in the. The wedding feast is great, right? The time afterwards when everybody's relaxing, they're all having a good time. And he says that when he returns, it'll be a wedding feast. And that we, the church, will be presented pure and spotless without any blemish. How cool is that? How cool is that that we will appear that way without any evidence of any of our past sin? And that will be a physical proof of something you already have right now. If you're trusting in Christ and repent of your sin, you are pure and spotless in his sight. Jesus has done that for you. He's done that for you through the bread, which represents his body. It's gluten-free, by the way. Don't worry about that. But the bread, which represents his body, he gave his very body for you. He gave everything, totally exposed for you, giving his body on the cross, stretching out his arms willingly as he's pierced, bleeding out, knowing that that blood will cover all your sin and bring the two of you together for eternity. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of marriage. We thank you for the gift of sex. We thank you for the warning against adultery. Lord, I want to pray for those who are here this morning that have been cut by it. There's many that have been cut by this, Lord. And we know that for them that you see and you ponder and you care. And Lord, I pray that you would minister special grace today to those who have been cut by adultery. Lord, may we be a church that, that, that expresses your love to them. And Lord, we pray that you would um, come and give them a special sense of your presence and communion and time of worship that you see and you ponder, you know, you care. And Lord, I want to pray for all of us, Lord, as far as a message of prevention, Lord. Help us to steer clear. Help us to cultivate the delights we need to cultivate, Lord. Help us to be alert, Lord. We want to honor you. We want your church to be honored. We want your name to be honored in the world, and we pray that you would minister fresh grace to us there. Lord, I want to pray for anybody that's right now drawn to somebody that's not their spouse. Lord, I pray that you would have shaken them up this morning, and then all of a sudden they would come to their senses and turn, confess to a friend, and and get help, Lord. Lord, I pray that we'd be good friends to each other. I pray that we'd walk through even the most difficult things together as a family. And I just thank you, Lord, that you are the ultimate husband. You are the ultimate faithful one. And in spite of all of our unfaithfulness, you love us, you care for us. Lord, give us some of that in our lives for those around us. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to the weekly podcast of the Menifee Campus of Covenant Grace Church. If you'd like to know more about Covenant Grace Church, visit us online at covgrace.org.